0: Well, hi, everyone, and welcome to the Living With Power Hope podcast. I'm Lena Ebujamra, and I'm back. I'm your host, and I am so glad you're here. Now, if you've been with us before, you know that this is a place where we love to talk about difficult conversations, and we talk about hope in difficult situations. So you know we're doing this series called Uncomfortable Conversations About Racism in the Church. We've had some amazing guests so far, and I can't wait to introduce to you our guests for today. Remember that this series is really aimed at people who call themselves followers of Jesus. And the whole world needs to hear about racism, but this series here on this podcast is aimed at those of us who ought to be leading the world in acts of reconciliation and love, We're to spread the message of hope and. Jesus himself taught those principles. And so we're not to shy away from uncomfortable conversations, but to get a biblical understanding on how to love better and to give room for the Holy Spirit to change us as we do that. I believe with all my heart that our guests are going to help us do it. And so today's guest, I've met him just now and already like him so much. He has as much energy, if not more than I do, which is saying a lot for those of you who listen regularly. Reggie Key is his name. He's a youth advocate and motivational speaker, and and, man, he does a little bit of everything. He's authored three books. He's married with two kids who themselves have become authors of three books. And so if my sister's listening, Diana, you thought Sam was smart. Man, these kids are <laughs> something. So uh, listen up. You guys are going to enjoy hearing about him and the work he does. He runs a, a ministry called Ink Well Spoken as well as Manu Forty Ministries basically a uh, motivational speaking initiative uh, that is pitched at both the marketplace and faith-based programs where he inspires people to become uh, better equipped to live out the calling that God has uh, put on their life and to become the genius that we're called to be. And he might talk more about that in a minute. And so um, uh, you and your wife are elders at the Kingdom Advancement Center in Elgin, Uh, Reggie, and you're joining us from Elgin today. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing great. How are you?
0: Oh, man, I'm excited to to get people to meet you. I, I really have found you already so inspiring. And uh how in the world did you end up in Elgin?
1: <laughs> That's a great question. Um nobody ever nobody ever grows up saying, you know what, I want to move to Elgin, Illinois. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> but uh it, it definitely was a was an Abrahamic type of move. Um I had I'll give you the condensed version, but I had met my wife um, not back in 1997. We were both uh, grew up in Maryland, but never met each other until we went away to college. And uh, long story short, uh, over the years that I had known her, I eventually realized that she was she, she was meant to be my wife. And I made a prayer list uh, outlining everything that I wanted and everything that I did not want in a wife. And if, and if you know the Lord, he will honor your your request if you're bold enough to make it. And so she, she met every criteria, but she was out here in the Chicagoland area. And one of my criteria was I will not be in another long distance relationship. I had done that in the past. It failed miserably. And I just wasn't going to do it again. And here I find myself um, talking with this young lady who I'm like, you're going to make somebody a really good husband, but it's just not going to be me. Because in my mind, I'm like, she doesn't meet this one criteria. So I, you know, we're just going to be friends, which is very, it was very soothing for me because I didn't have to try and. Chase down, chase her down, and you know, yeah, right. she do the most to, to try and court her. I could just enjoy the friendship. Well, as it would it, the, the company that I worked for at the time in Maryland went through some. There was a telecommunications industry around 2002. That industry, that bubble burst, and I was laid off. But you couldn't have seen a person more happy to be laid off because I knew. That when when I cut this tether, or when they cut the tether, and gave me a check for doing so, that I was going to be able to move out here to Elgin, Illinois, and and that would then make her fit the criteria for who yeah. was. And so I knew beyond the shadow of a doubt when the Lord said to Abraham, "Separate from thy kin and go to a place that I will show thee." That's what Elgin was for me to 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 marry <laughs> my wife.
0: That's awesome. That's a great story, man. I got to have you back on a dating episode sometime. Yeah, got all please, well, that's great. So you've been married for a while, and and now you grew up in in Maryland. Was it like a you, you go to a black church? Now we're here to talk about race. Now you grew up in a in, tell me a little bit about your environment. You grew up in. was it a very black neighborhood? Was it a suburb? Uh, were you a minority in the areas where you grew up?
1: No, I've never. I grew up not being a minority. I grew up closer to DC. And even somebody named this today and they shocked me that they knew it. But I grew up in a county called PG County or Prince George's County. And that's Mm. in Maryland. That's closer to D.C. than it is Baltimore. And that is a predominantly African-American community. It is one of the most affluent African-American communities in the country. Mm. However, my parents decided to put me in a private Christian school. Um, From kindergarten through the fourth grade, and that private Christian school was predominantly white.
0: Was that a good experience, or how did you feel going to that school?
1: So, here's the beautiful thing about being young I truly can remember not focusing on race. I truly remember just being amongst people that, you know, yeah, there were some black, some little other little black boys and girls like me. It wasn't until the third grade that one day I came home and talked to my mom and my dad, and I said, hey, mom, hey, dad. I think the, the my teacher is not calling on me and this other little black boy when we have our answers, when we have our hands up. She's not calling on us. She'll call on somebody else who doesn't have their hand up. But when I focused in on she's not calling on me and the other little black boy, my parents' antenna went up.
0: and yeah, they said, I would
1: imagine. What is that about? And so I learned the word prejudice for the first time in the third grade. So and what, I, I wonder what did they do about it? They, they called a meeting with the teacher and they told her face to face what I told. I was in the office, too. They told her what I said and she turned beet red. I remember that she turned beet red in her face and kind of was flustered and couldn't really give an, uh, a validation or a rationalization for what it is that I saw and what it is that mm-hmm. I experienced. And so even in that in that experience, I didn't feel like I was being discriminated against. I just was calling it like I saw it. I was like, I don't know why me and the other little black boy aren't getting called on in class. It wasn't until I left the private Christian school and entered into public school that I realized that my my schooling environment was not was very unique. Um, I went into yeah. public school and it was the neighborhood, it was my neighborhood school and I walked to that school. That's how it wasn't close, but it was close enough so that I wasn't a bus rider. And I remember it was a staunch change. All of a sudden, I was surrounded by all of my African American peers, and I didn't fit in. Mm. And I didn't fit in culturally. I didn't fit in because you know I had to. I wore uniforms, so I would press my jeans. I had creases in my jeans. You know, I, I was still the one that would raise my hand in class and try and answer questions, <laughs> and I stood out. I had glasses, so I stood out, and I eventually adapted. But I remember very distinctively one one year, maybe in fifth or sixth grade. One of my friends from my private Christian school had a party, and I went to that party and felt very out of place. Mm. I was like, "Something's not right." And then I was like, "You know, I I got teased a lot when I transitioned into public school, and I had to learn very quickly to defend myself with my words." So it's like
0: there's a black way to be and a and almost like a white way to be for a young black guy like you, where you were like you almost were too white for the black guys. Yeah, in
1: certain respects. I
0: don't know how to say that, but right. I mean, like you had to sort of adapt. Like in what way? You just had to be tough. I had
1: to. I had to be tougher. I cried a right. lot in my first year in public right. school.
0: But <laughs> some it, of it was that you were in a Christian school to a public, or was it a racial thing more?
1: It was a Christian private school right. that was predominantly white, was predominantly no, white. No, but people.
0: like you know, the switch out to public school. Like was it that you had been around so many? Like you were sort of tamed in some way. You know what I mean? Like was it that, or was I it was more? Yeah, you were sheltered. That's a good word.
1: I was sheltered from, you know, my my environment, and so when right. I just got tossed into my environment, into the rawness of it, I just it took me a while to acclimate. And you know, one thing that 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 they did to me that I thought I thought they would just really didn't like me, but they just kind of they just kind of rib you. They just kind of like yeah, yeah. Know, put fun at you, and but they put fun at everybody. But I took it personal because I had never experienced that. But with the right. year, I developed. Tougher skin, and I developed a sharp tongue of my own, and started talking back and being able to, to keep up with them. And that, and when I went back amongst my private school friends, that tongue was still there, and they were like Reggie, like mm-hmm. what? you've checked. yeah now you're
0: yeah yeah yeah. Do you think young black people are? like you sort of have to be tougher because of the environment you're in or some of it just cultural, like we're Lebanese, I'm Lebanese. And so we're talk loud. We're, so some of this is just cultural. Do you think like that, that um, like, you know, you sort of have, and again, you, you can stereotype and be like, there is a toughness, to uh, young black people growing up, which some of it I think is like, because it's forced on you, you have to fight for like your parents have to go in and talk to the teacher about not calling you to raise your hand. Do you think that's just like some of that is forced on? Is that part of what I would say maybe is systemic racism where you have to fight for yourself in a way?
1: That's a very good question. It's a very complicated answer. What I'm going to say And I never realized that this is what I was doing until this point. I didn't learn this phrase that I'm about to say to you until, you know, I I became an adult. I learned in the fourth and fifth grade to code switch. That's what I learned.
0: Mm -hmm. Explain that word.
1: That word code switch means when you you get around, when you get into an environment where people are talking different from you, you have to acclimate and, and talk as they talk. Yeah. This is something it's almost as if African-Americans are bilingual in a sense, because we can get around our people. And I'm not trying to I'm not this is not about educational level. It's just about linguistics. It's about dialect. It's about vernacular. It's about whatever you want to call it. Colloquialism, whatever you want to call it. You just have to as as an African-American, I had to learn how to adapt quickly, both when mm. I got into the public school environment and then when I got back amongst my other friends. My white Christian friends, I had to talk differently. And I and I didn't realize what I was learning in that process. But over the years, I came to know that that is a, that is a term that African-Americans are very comfortable with. With It's called code switching. When we go into our, the workforce, and the workforce, we're like the only African-American person in our division. We can't talk to our colleagues the way we would talk to our family members. I mean, yeah. I don't just mean from a respect level. I just mean there's certain... But I remember being... I served in the educational field for a little while, and I remember being in a meeting where uh, we were we were trying to set up uh, some type of uh, retreat or conference or something. And somebody said, "Hey, you know, we should do X, Y, and Z." And I said, "Hey, look, we should do that, but we should do it this way." And when they agreed to what I was saying, they said, "Okay, Reggie, can you take can you take charge of that?" And I said, "Bet." Mm. And somebody pulled me to the side later and said, hey, look, you probably shouldn't say that because they don't understand what you mean when you say bet. Like, she was confused by what you said. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, like, are you serious? So I'm like, "Okay, she didn't she didn't catch what I was saying. Yes, I agree. I'll do it. Right. Knowing when to when to do the code, when to change up your way of speaking is code switching.
0: Right. All, and it's interesting because as an immigrant myself, again, I came out when I was 15 and, and I see like, you almost like, if you're from another country, you sort of do this too. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have a way of being Indian people. I think a lot of movies on Indian families with this, you know, come into the U S and the second generation. But what's odd in this conversation is that you're not from another country. You're American and you're here, which is sort of like, so, so this kind of brings us back to sort of this, there is history that plays into all of this, what's happening now. I mean, there are a long history that brings us to sort of the stress of, of, of the conversations now. That there are good, good stresses. Um, and I think that's sometimes overlooked, like people want to say, well, I, I wasn't born in a racist family. And I, ha- you know, I'm married to a black person, or no, 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 there's examples of ways that you think, well, I'm not racist, because right. there's sort of a list of things that white people list as, I have three, you know, black friends in my circle of friends. And, and so you sort of excuse yourself, but mm-hmm. but black people see it as wider than that. And really, a lot of white people now understand and are trying to understand that. You want to talk a little bit about that? Like, how has this system uh, over the years and decades and really centuries, you could say a century, uh, played a part in in current day racism.
1: Have you ever? This is going to seem like a tangent, but flow with me. Have you okay. ever watched the movie The Usual Suspects?
0: Yeah, I love it. It's been a
1: while. Do you remember one of the more famous quotes that Kaiser Sose said at the time? We didn't know it was verbal or verbal rather. He said, uh, "The greatest trick." the enemy ever did or the devil ever did was to convince the world that he does not exist. Mm. Do you remember that yeah. statement? Yeah, yeah, vaguely. It's a power it's a powerful statement. And that's what systemic racism is. Even putting the word systemic in front of racism is redundant because racism in and of itself cannot exist unless it's within a system. Mm. Um I've been uh my, myself and my pastor have been meeting with uh, the chief of police, and some of her uh, high commanders in the city of Elgin, because there was a young woman, uh, an African-American woman that was killed in 2018. And the community said, hey, look, this was not this was an unjust shooting. Um, she, the, the officers should not be allowed to come back. And we, the, the very thing that you're doing, which, by the way, I really admire you for it, we knew that reconciliation and healing was going to be needed between the police and the community. And so we began meeting with the police and saying, hey, look, you need to understand the language that that the community is speaking, because when they see a shooting like this, you're saying that that was a good shoot. It was by the book. Well, then the book needs to be changed because even I looked at the law and said, you know what? By your laws, this was a good shoot, but it was it, it was not it was excessive force. But it was by the book, though. And so beyond having dialogue about, hey, you need to understand. The, the, the buzzwords for the community. When you say it's a good shoot and this person has lost her life and she's a minority, that triggers the history behind it in this country of 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 minorities being killed by police officers and then those police officers not being brought to justice because it's part of the system, because it was a well, good... Shoot. Well,
0: the case in point now, bringing it to, I mean, Breonna Taylor's story is sort yeah. of, to me, a classic. So so this woman gets killed. And now I see a lot of like rhetoric from, you know, People who are opposed to being accused of racism, who like the white people who are defensive and say well but but there's more to the story, her boyfriend and this and that and this and and there's so many reasons why it was okay by the book that the cops did it, and then you see a huge other side of it which are going. It's unjust. And so it's created, a, and, and by the way, a lot of Christians end, to, uh, end up falling on the side of this conversation that is politically conservative. So again, not to say, this isn't the situation we're trying to say, well, the police are wrong and black people are right or vice versa. Right. It's sort of what you're saying, which is it, it shouldn't have happened because just because you have a rule that admits that it's okay, there's some something deeper going on in this situation that makes is. that mur- that that killing uh unacceptable and sort of that's sort of what the african-american community is that's what we've
1: been trying right. to get people to see for generations and it just you know it comes off like we're just complaining trust me i i have to live what, what,
0: what with, do you think well, what do you what, what, of like, so the argument people will say, I mean, I've listened to both sides of this and a lot of argument that says, well, look at the stats, you know, because p- police officers don't just shoot black people. They also shoot white people and statistically percentage wise, you know, you kind of go on tangents like this, which sort of, again, this is the point. It
1: does miss the point. So let me, um, I'll, I'll remind me to get back to that because what I, what I was building up to with this story with the uh, police department is one of the things that we had to define for the chief of police, who who was a uh, she is Armenian, I believe,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: her her deputy chief is an African. I mean, is a is a white male, um, and a couple of her officers were white males. And we say, hey, look, we need you to understand what the definition of racism is, because as long as you, when we say that word, as long as you define it how you're defining it, you're not going to hear the argument that we're making. It's not an argument, but you're not going to hear the point that we're making. So everyone has prejudice. Everyone discriminates
0: mm-hmm. because
1: this is, what, this is how we learn to keep ourselves safe. If we go into an environment and we see other people around us that don't look like who we're used yeah. to being around or don't look like us, that's a, that's a, that's a self-preservation act where you're going you're to initially have a prejudice against somebody based on how they look. You're going to discriminate against that person based on how they look and how they act and how they talk. But what you should not do is then not make yourself available to learn who they are and to let down your guard. People are too afraid to let down their guard. And then uh, the thing that makes it racist, though, is when your discrimination and your prejudice is built within the system that governs the laws. That's good. That's what racism is. That's why I said systemic racism is redundant. They are one and the same when when the same prejudices that you have are being are, are in the minds of legislature legislature people who are making laws and enforcing them. And when we talk about enforcement, that's when we get into police. That's when now you have a system of racism that is built against anyone that does not look
0: like who But there is but biblically them. speaking, there is such a thing as as maybe an individual racist sin even even corporates and i would say even biblically speaking i mean how does that your definition of racism versus versus systemic racism i see the nuance but how does that translate biblically
1: that's a great question so the the truth of the matter is that the law you see this you, you said you you said you want to ruffle feathers you don't know who you were <laughs> <you> talking to <laughs>
0: But I like it. The- no, no. I mean, I, I really, I, because I, I, th- I really think it's, it's both and honestly. I mean, but, but I, I do want to press into that a little because I, my focus again is Christians. And so people can be like, well, I'm not responsible for the system, but I agree with your prior statement, which is everyone has prejudice. You walk in a room with all guys, you put your defenses up you, or, or here's another one. You walk, if you've been hurt by the church, you walk into a room with a bunch of church leaders and you're prejudiced against mm-hmm. those leaders. I mean, we can translate this into many ways. And, and the sin is when you let that affect the way that you treat people the way. So there is an individual sin versus a there is indi-
1: this individual discrimination. This indi- but if, if your discrimination and prejudice is enforced and backed up by the culture and the laws that govern the culture that you're in, that's racism. So to answer your question, like, how does this look in the Bible? There's a need for making sure that we're, that we're safe, but not to the extent that we exclude people who breathe air just like us from the, the, the right, to, to to come into the system
0: well and and the systems have affected the church and so you think about even the way that worship happens i mean people who was who it who said the most segregated hour is sunday morning
1: Yes, I and mean, there's no
0: question that why i mean i mean I, i'm still i still get i mean I want i want the answer to that will there ever be a day in your mind where there will not be a black church and a white church
1: that's a that's a great you answer you're, you're asking some really great questions i don't know what I had to answer to
0: but where did that start? I mean, was it in the days of slavery where just black people just gathered together because they were, I mean, how far back does that go? Because now you have some, someone told me, we were recently talking, they're like, well, you know, there are some mixed, but even in a big multi-campus mega churches, you still primarily see a heavier number of one or the other you know i mean if you go to tony evans church, there's probably more black people than white if you go to any of the other like you know mega churches you're going to probably see a bigger number of white people so really even in that context i don't see very few churches have a general diverse i remember going to the moody church downtown chicago which is not a church that You know, it's more transient. A lot of visitors come through. It's a historic church, and that's probably one of the most ethnically diverse—not just black and white, but all races that I've been in in my life. Uh, But but really, there is a distinction of a a primarily black and a primarily white church, which bothers me personally. Why? Why is that? And and I don't know if that will ever change.
1: You—you said it. You—it does go back to um, slavery times, I believe, because you know, in slavery times, I mean, they wouldn't even let us, you know assemble publicly uh with with white people so our churches had to be separate our churches were you know for the for the most part mo- most of the slaves were illiterate the ones that could read were most of the time the, the pastor they would allow him to have a bible that bible will also be a way to kind of subvert and subjugate him but that that became a thing where hey look you know think about it if if you're meeting with fellow slave fellow slaves and you're like hey look we, we're safe in this environment. You're going to tend to propagate that throughout the generations as long as you feel like you're not safe. Mm. And of course, so, so this segregation that happens in churches is just a generational kind of inheritance that we have to wake ourselves up from. Or we have to ask the question, do we feel safe? And it's not just a question for African-Americans, but it's a, it's a question for Caucasians. It's a question for every believer. Do we feel safe amongst people who don't look like us? At the same day, there's one mind, one body, one spirit, and many members. Those members don't right. supposed to look alike. So when we begin to, to believe the word that we that we put our faith in, and execute and walk it out, there is room for change. I've seen it. Right. Um, the church that we're in is only eight years old. We're in a building now that we own, but when we first started off, we rented from uh, an Assemblies of God church. We rented a building on their property. That was a majority, Af- uh, a majority Caucasian church, but they gave us room to rent out because of a relationship that we had formed with the principal of the school that was on the grounds, and he also had rented out the the same building with uh, a, Lat- a Latin X church, and he also rented out the building to uh, a black Hebrew church, and so there were times when. We would kind of come together and say, hey, look, the Lord, is, the Lord is doing a thing. We need to all meet together. So we would go into the main room, the main sanctuary and the main building. And I remember one day I, looked, I went to go pray and I looked out across the faces and I saw what it is that you're saying, will we ever get there? I saw white people. I saw Latino people. I saw black people. I saw Asians. I saw every denomination worshiping the same God. And so it's just a matter of how intentional it requires work. And that's the thing; we get lazy when we look up and see the work that we have to do, and we just fall back into our comfortable, our comfortable. Uh, oh, that's right. Home.
0: And that's what, that you describe what heaven's going to look like. I mean, people from yeah. all nations, all races, and, and so so who's so whose job is it to do the work? Um, who's supposed to take the first step? Because I can hear almost. You know, the white people going well. Black people are welcome to come to our churches. We're, we you know, the, the doors are wide open. Just come on and worship with us. But, but it's not that simple, right? It's I mean, not that simple. You have to so, have, open talk your about doors that a little. Why, why is it? I mean, because I'm asking a bit of a rhetorical question. I mean, whose job is it to take the first step?
1: It's you know, this is maybe going to sound like a cop out, but I think it's it's the job of both sides. Uh, the the a a white. Congregant needs to go out into a minority neighborhood, and not not a single person by themselves. But you know, we we our church is in a largely Latino community, and we've gone out into the streets and just pray for people.
0: Mm. But that is a little bit challenging. I mean, I mean, white people would be. I mean, you said we're afraid of change. That I feel like that would be a little nerve wracking, maybe scary for white people to be. Well, I'm gonna go down to you know the South Side of Chicago, just walk around this you know block. No, no.
1: I'm not saying you got to go to the south side of Chicago. <laughs> wherever your wherever your church is, there's bound to be in in that neighborhood. Don't go to the neighborhood that looks like what your right. church looks like on the inside. Do your research. Don't be foolish, right? <laughs> like, make sure right. you're going to the place that everyone feels comfortable. Who don't force everyone to go. Like, whoever feels led by the spirit, and that's the most important point. If you're led by the spirit, though, then he's gonna, he's going to lead you to some place that's safe. It'll be uncomfortable, but it'll be safe, though. And we've confused those two. We've confused uncomfortability with an un, uh, unsafe environment, and they two are not the same.
0: Well, and I think you know it's funny, I heard, Va- I like Voddy Bakum. I think he's got interesting ideas. He's a conservative black man and has ministered in white spaces. And I, I did hear, and I have a lot of respect for him, but but I do, in thinking about some of his, I mean, he, he recalls the story of when he was asked to be a pastor in a, in a white church, and he took that step, and he was critiqued by the black community. But you know, and his point was, if I don't go and educate and teach people, and you know, be the change that I want to see, sort of idea is what I gathered. Then, you know, it's not going to change. Now, but there is a sense where you look at um, systems where the power lies, in a sense, you know. And there is a sense where the power has been with the white people in the United yeah. States. So, from a Christian perspective, I think you it's, you can easily say, well, well, we we both have to make a move. But in a sense. It's the person in a position of power that needs to take the first step.
1: It's always the per- the per- the person in a position of power. That's what we were telling the chief of police. Like, hey, look, you're in the position of power to impact your community. You do have to make the first step, but the community, this is where I say the step is together. The community right. has to see the step that's being made and not do what you say that 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 one. Uh, community did, which was they critiqued the person that comes in. Like, why are you in here? Why are you doing it this way? Right. Why are you coming at it? Like, just receive, see the spirit behind why a person is trying to step beyond racial barriers and boundaries and greet and, and meet them. You, they take a step, you take a step. And so.
0: How do you think churches are doing now in the last three months compared to good. before? So, before George Floyd, let's use that as a marker.
1: I. Uh, it's been frustrating, to be honest with you. Um, there, there are my pastor was I was talking to him today. He's he's like a year older than me, so he's forty two, and um, he he does work in the community. So he's saying he he works with the Boys and Girls Club. He's saying he's getting a lot of board members who are calling him and saying, "Hey, look, what can we do?" Or just wanting to have dialogue with him and just you know having they're they're open to having these tough conversations. Um, help me get back on track. What were you asking me?
0: Well, how are, how's the church doing? That's so this point. is just a good sign, but like a person you can only do so much, right? So you end right. up, being, you know, just, I mean, so what's the next it. step? Fast conversation. So you educate, you can't, but how is the church doing in terms of manage, you know, managing, I hate the term managing because they're really more repenting and, and, and doing work to, to eradicate racism from the church. How are, how is the church by and large leaders in particular in the church doing post George Floyd compared to pre George Floyd?
1: Well, I don't, I think the church is, I think the church is struggling. Um, I think the heart is there in some. I think that there there is an unrepentance in the heart of others who refuse to see. They, they want to try and talk about how, you know, George Floyd's criminal background. I don't, you know, whether it's true or not. And they want to get into as if that justifies the way he died. Um, these are conservative evangelicals that we're encountering where, let me let me let me let me give you this example. So I've noticed, you know, when a police officer does something that causes that becomes police brutality, you ever seen like with George Floyd? There were several people standing. There were several officers standing by that didn't do anything, right? Yeah. Because yeah. They have this unspoken brotherhood that says, "Hey, look, even if he's wrong, no, I'm standing by his side."
0: Even some were black, and that was so, yeah. and the ancient guy, like I was, it was so aggravating that you couldn't watch that to and be like, why aren't you saying something?
1: That is, that is in essence how I feel like the church is responding. Yeah, you know mm-hmm. what, well, we, we've done some things that are wrong and racist, but as a group though, we're one body, so we got to stick together. And and, it, and some people are choosing to dig in and, and, and rationalize and justify their position instead of opening up their hearts and letting the Lord speak to them. And say hey look maybe there's something that you haven't done wrong i'm even trying to make sure that in, in whatever i'm saying that i make you know i in the back of my head i'm saying to myself i might be wrong i need to make sure that i'm listening to what the other person is saying and then making myself available to repent should i need to to change my mind should i need to instead of digging in in my own my own what i feel like is the truth because you know my truth may not be god's truth and I feel yeah. like the church has been has not done a good job in responding to that because the church is too busy uh, being on the defense. And when you're on the defense, you just kind of bat down everything that comes at you. Now, of course, when you speak of anything like this, you always generalize. It's just it just makes the conversation. Right, better. right, right. Of course, when I say that, I'm not saying that the church as a whole is responding this way. There are some who are trying to make a difference and trying to do us to do to do better and to, and to course correct, so to speak. Right. Yeah, but when you say yeah. like the you know I don't know if you heard about this interview. Um, what's this this pastor's name from? I believe it's from Florida. He he met with Christian rapper Lecrae. Oh yeah, 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 yeah.
0: I heard that recently. Somebody brought it up on a podcast. Yeah. It was Leo and Lecrae.
1: And you know, in, in his in his trying to to explain slavery from a Christian perspective, because he didn't like the word white privilege. He said, Well, maybe we should just call it white blessing, right? And in that instance, instead of, instead of, he chose to dig in and defend and try to rationalize the position that they had instead of just saying, you know what, we were wrong. One of the easy this may seem really simple, Lena, but this is this is major. Nehemiah talked about doing this in the Bible. And I believe it's in chapter one. He said, Hey, look, I'm going to take upon me the sins of my fathers. They're long gone. But I'm going to take responsibility for what they did and just confess to God and say, Lord, I, I repent, forgive us for our sins. Right. 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 But, but not enough people in the church are willing to do that. But that was my answer. So I shouldn't be responsible for that. And I and I and I had this. I don't want to call it an argument, but I had this. This conversation with somebody over Facebook. When I when I pointed back to Nehemiah, he repented. He said, "You know what? You're absolutely right." And that's what that's the change that needs to happen. Not digging in and saying, "No, I can't concede." You know, digging in like like the police do, like sometimes police officers seem to do, where they say, "Hey, look, he did wrong, but he wanted us though, so we not going to, we can't, we can't concede right. to that. We have to, we have to defend him." No, just just stand on the side of justice. Stand on the side of yeah. God's righteousness.
0: Exactly. I mean, and it's become, I mean, sadly, it's the issue of, it's a sin. The sin of racism has sadly become political. And you almost see people who are on the, you know, this has been sort of a critique of of conservative Christian evangelicalism, if you're going to lump another word, but, or just conservative Christianity, is that they uh, tend to take the opposing issues of of some of the, like, like, I see that the liberal political party seems to be much more in line with um withstanding against racism than what you would expect to be uh, a right. biblical, uh, conservative, I guess, matter. And so it, I think there's a – when you think of racism as a political issue,
1: yeah. you're not seeing
0: clearly. And so even there's some hum- humility in saying, maybe I need to rethink that. Yeah. Um, which, by the way, Louis Giglio is a great guy. Just to, I, I, I feel like sometimes I, – I was surprised by that interview because I, I, I don't know how he would even say this out loud. And yet I, I kind of think, was he – was, was he? Is it? Just, people are so uncomfortable with conversing about r- racial issues that things come out of your mouth that you kind of go like, what, what, "What was that?" And so I think there is a bit of a fear of speaking into a topic, lest I make a big, you know, mistake and in, in saying something that I didn't really mean. I don't know what he meant, but people I remember watching to, and being shocked by that. People like, are is,
1: to lose you know, their support, so he right. didn't want to come out and say, "Hey, look, you know, white right privilege exists." Because that word is a just like there are some racist words that are buzzwords for black people. That word white, that phrase white privilege, is a buzzword amongst conservative evangelicals. And okay. so, what he decided to do instead of use that word, he wanted to make it softer so that it right. would be more palatable. And so you can't do that sometimes, like you said. You gotta, you gotta just ruffle some feathers, and if you lose friends over it, so be it. You know, I've right. heard people say, what? What? Heard you got to define, "Define white privilege." White define privilege. So I'd yeah, rather yeah. use another phrase. This, you know, we read a book with the chief of police here called White Fragility. Okay. By Robin D'Angelo. Great book for, for starting conversations, for breaking down walls. And what white fragility and white privilege speaks to is that, hey, look, you know, when you think of the word fragile, it means it's easily broken, right? Mm-hmm. And so there are vulnerabilities that we all have, not just white people. We all have. Think about something that you're vulnerable about, mm-hmm. and think if, if you see somebody that's about to poke your vulnerability, you're going to get guarded. No, nope, don't touch that. No, what
0: you doing? Yeah,
1: yeah. Oh, that's going to fall apart if you touch it, and you're going to defend it because you're like, I don't want to fall apart. It's uncomfortable to fall apart, but we have to be comfortable in coming apart in in whatever makes us weak. And the weakness of 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 Caucasian Americans in this country. Is in fact this power system that they that they they exist within it, even if they're not explicitly trying to take advantage of it. It just it, it abounds towards them, and to speak against it, to speak to it, makes them fragile. They're like, no, don't don't speak to that, or I'm I'm not racist. Well, when you redefine and understand racism as I've said it to be, which is, hey, look, you're a part of a system. That the laws work to your benefit. You didn't create the system, and we're not saying that you're guilty of the system, but you have to acknowledge that the system exists. But that acknowledgement comes at the ostrac- at the ostracization of that person. If that person, like this person that wrote this book, Robin DeAngelo, she gets people call her traitor all the time. You're a traitor. How you know, how dare you? You're out of your mind, and this and the third, and they're all her white peers. They're fragile. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, that's interesting. What are some examples of, I mean, moving on with like even this thread of, you know, white people who thinks, okay, I don't, I'm not a supremacist. I'm not, you know, I'm not racist. But there are a lot of microaggressions is the word that somebody recently used. I mean, what, what, what does a black person mean when he says, you, you know, you were racist and you didn't even see it. Sort of those blind spots that also can be classified as microaggressions uh-huh. that you might have felt even in the context of the church with the white church in particular. You mentioned one with a teacher, I would, I mean, just to sort of try to give that some body, the teacher who doesn't pick on you subconsciously, right? I mean, that's a that, that that's sort of in my mind, is that a form of microaggression, subconsciously? I, I can't speak
1: to her because I, I don't know what was going on in her mind. All I knew, you know, my perspective was from a three, uh, right, third grade right, 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 right. kid, right? So I don't know why she did that. You know, I don't know why I, she did it enough for me to observe it. So I can't call that a microaggression because to me, a microaggression is intentional. Maybe it's uh-huh. not. Okay. That's, what we're talking about. Well, that's a good question.
0: Is it, I mean, is it intentional? I mean, or is it so? So think of. I mean, let's think of what are some microaggressions that might be. Like I, I remember reading a book. I think maybe um, Austin Channing. I don't know if she meant it in that, but she has a great book by the way on, on racism. Um, but but she talks about um, women who come up and touch her hair. Things like that. Maybe that the word is not microaggression. Maybe I'm confusing. What What do you think of when you think of microaggression?
1: We talked about that ones- with the police too. They're like, man, you can't even touch the hair. Like, no, you don't understand. What goes but
0: goes. I can't. don't want somebody touching my hair. I mean, I can understand it.
1: Right, right. Um, the only thing that comes up in my mind, and this would be worth um, having a discourse about separately, a microaggression that the white church has done. Um, both intentionally in the history of the white church and unintentionally amongst those who perpetuate this image is the image of a white Jesus. Mm. I can remember, Lena, I can remember the first time somebody pointed out to me that Jesus was not white, I was offended. (laughs) I was like, what? Look at the picture. Like, What are you talking about? Right? (laughs) right he and, was blonde with blue eyes what are you talking about right and years later as i began to you know i embraced my faith but as i began to research my faith and research the historicity of it when i began to see the geographic location of of jerusalem when i began to see the geographic location of egypt and you know you might say like well that's obvious egypt is in africa but okay now why was elizabeth taylor portraying uh cleopatra like back in the day those are intentional microaggressions that when we don't, when they're not corrected, become implicit microaggressions. So, you know, one of your questions that you, that you were going to get to that I haven't heard yet, you're going to say, well, what has the white church done to you, though, that, that was racist? And that was one of my, that was my main response, the perpetuation of the image of Jesus Christ as a white man.
0: Well, to follow that thread too, so do you see him, I'm just curious, do you see him as black or as Middle Eastern? I do not see him as black either. I see him as,
1: if if when he was a child, Joseph and Mary took him and hid him in Egypt, if if he was white, he would have stuck out. <laughs> that wouldn't have been a good hiding place. Egypt is in Africa, North Africa. I know the Egyptians today have have been kind of, you know, there, 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 there's some, some racial mixing there and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But back in the day though, in his time, Egyptians were not, they were definitely tan. I'll at least give them that. They were tan, right? right. And so right. if they were tan and they went there to hide amongst them, then that means that Joseph, Mary, and Jesus were tan. Now here's the microaggression. Here's where the microaggression comes in, Lena. If you say that to certain people, conservative evangelical, let's call them wasps. You ever heard of a wasp? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: They'll they'll say it doesn't matter what color he is. Right. Why does it matter? Why do you have to figure out like what his what his color is, it shouldn't matter. And it's like, you know what, it shouldn't, but but your ancestors made it matter. When they when they whitewashed the entire Bible and made it seem like we don't exist, when they said the only time that they were willing to say, hey th- there is a black person in the Bible is when uh Cain was cursed and there was a there was a symbol that was put on his skin so that everyone would know that he was cursed in the land after he killed his brother Abel. When 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 historians say, or when a biblical scholar has said of old, that curse was that his skin was made black.
0: Mm. Wow.
1: And then when, when that gets perpetuated and when it's not corrected, that's microaggression against
0: me. Well, and it's like a complicated, it's not even even because it's not in a, one statement in a vacuum. This is sort of going back to sort of when we started talking about systemic the system. racism. It's not one instant, in a, it's a system that has perpetuated this idea that, let I me mean, hate, to, I don't know how to boil it down, but that whites are better than blacks over the course of the past 100 years. And so now you're laying into this the faith of our, you know. And so, yeah, I, I see your point. I mean, so it's not, like, it, I can almost hear a person, well, why is it, what's the big deal? Like, I'm, I'm an Arab. I'm from Lebanon, right? So it's mm-hmm. the closest country to Israel. So, I mean, if anyone looks like Jesus, it's my brothers in a That's sense. Right. That's right. And, and they get their own share of, you know, at the airport 2000 and, and you know, during 911, like, God help them. I they would not want to be a mm-hmm. black man. I mean, a white man from the Middle East at that point. But the point of it is, I think, you know, I, I think your point is well taken, which is all of these microaggressions play into a narrative that is wider than just one day, one person, one comment. Right. And really, there is so much more to this. And I think, I think when a white person says, well, I'm not guilty of racism, I think it misses the context. I think that's, that's dangerous.
1: Here's what you do. like you should, you should actually do this. You should record this. You should just start talking to some white evangelicals and say, hey, Jesus was not white. And see what their first initial knee jerk reaction is in their face. Their words may right, say something right. different, but their body language, when you say it, see how they flinch. If they flinch, right. I'm not gonna assume right. and present that they will. But when you see them say, when they if they buck back, like, wait a minute, what are you saying? Like I saw something recently that went took it further. It said there's not a white person in the Bible. <laughs> and I was like, wait, whoa, wait a minute. That might be that might be factual because everything took place in the Middle East.
0: Right, right.
1: And so I'm like, wow, and and Positions of power in platforms in, in media and in arts and entertainment that continue to perpetuate that imagery need to need to check themselves because you know, I mean, Moses was portrayed by uh, what's my man's name? Uh, Russell.
0: Oh, has, oh, yeah, the- oh yeah, right. Was it Russell? No. Knows. I don't remember. Russell yeah.
1: played Noah, he played Noah recently, right. and they were trying to be accurate in the film. I'm like, y'all trying to be accurate. I mean, you know, they took some creative license just for the sake of movie making. But I'm like, if you want to be accurate, though, like, come on, man, like we we got to get better representation. I mean, even The Passion of the Christ, as great of a movie as that was, I mean, they got the Aramaic going and everything. I'm like, but I don't see true representation of the people in that in that area. Why? Why is Jim Cazizu, even though he did a great job, like why is he portraying Jesus? And I think Mel Gibson, for as much as he loves to push the envelope, he still had to pull back a little bit and say, "Well, if I want to get this money, though, I can't. I can't hire a tan actor for Jesus, though." And it's starting to change a little bit. I, I, I try to watch these shows that come out now, and I look and see how diverse the casting. The casting is. Uh, what's the What's the thing that's out now? Uh, the Chosen, I think it is. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. That's that's doing a better job, right? But you know, the, the 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 history of a country is is in its storytelling, and the history of a people is in its storytelling. And if your story continues to be false representation, then and you choose not to, to to look the other way and say, well, it doesn't matter, then that's that's a problem.
0: Do you see as we come here towards the end? This this is honestly it's been a fun conversation in a sense, but a painful one. But Fun in that I think you just roll up your sleeves and, and we're really talking about stuff that I think matters. I don't think I'm I'm an ER doctor. I'd like to get to straight to the problem and try to figure out, you know, it's this where's the hope in this? Do sure you see wife. hope for the church?
1: Um, it's it's gotten a little dark, Lena, to be honest with you. I, I was telling my wife, I said, I can't keep looking at mm. my Facebook feed every day. I can't keep looking at the I, I don't look at the news anyways, because it's just there's such vitriol out there. There's such hatred. There's yeah. such bias. There's such there's such chosen ignorance. Being ignorant for ignorance' sake is one thing, but when you choose to be ignorant and then open your mouth and reveal your ignorance, that's just another level. And I said I can't take it. I'm becoming I'm becoming militant, and I don't want to be. I want to to remain open to different hmm. uh, different uh, viewpoints. It saddens me when people who I share my faith with not not I witness to, but who share my faith. When I hear them come out their neck and say something like all lives matter in response to black lives matter and Mm. they don't get why that's offensive to what's going on right now because they're choosing to dig in and and have a retort versus listening to why that voice is out there. And so though what I see with my physical eyes does not bring me much hope, to be quite frank with you, at Mm. times. I have to see with my spiritual eyes and understand that the Lord is doing something. He has, he has stirred up this country to reveal the racism and hatred that's still there. That makes me sad, but Hey, the scripture says uh, hope deferred makes the heart sick. I'm not, I'm not in the mood for having a sick heart. So I choose to see my spiritual eyes and understand that by faith, the Lord is doing something to bring reconciliation because we're all called to be ministers of reconciliation. And I believe that he is doing a work it's going to be a painful, like I said earlier, work is work. is work. It's painful sometimes, but he's doing a work to, to bring about the restitution of all things. I am hopeful Amen. in that. I'm hopeful in the word of God that we are being driven in a direction towards his will.
0: Amen. I was going to ask you what you're praying for in this context, but I think even better as we wrap up, Reggie, can you pray for us? Pray for the church?
1: Yes, I can. Heavenly Father, we just... We know your word. We know that you say for my people, if my people who are called by my name should humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways and seek my face. Then shall I hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and will hear their land. We know that you have said this. We, we submit ourselves to you. We submit the error of our ways. We submit the the, the pride in our hearts and we repent of them. We take upon us both those who have been legalistic on the right and those who have been lawless on the left. And we realize, Lord, that you have said that if you are either for me or against me and that you do not exist on the side of the red or on the side of the blue, you exist on high. And we seek to be face to face with you. We seek to, to speak your word. We speak to we seek to walk out your truths no matter the cost. We, we seek to lose ourselves that we may gain life. We seek to, to mortify our flesh so that we may live, so that we may come out of the darkness and into your marvelous light as a chosen people, as a royal generation, as a priesthood that reflects not our own views, but yours, that reflects not our own ways, but yours, that reflects not our own words, but yours. We sacrifice our lives. We sacrifice our words. We sacrifice our hearts that you will restore them, that you will make them perfect. We acknowledge our wickedness and we repent corporately. We repent as a people, not as a person, but as a people, Mm. that you may pour out your spirit upon all flesh, that we may begin to prophesy, that we may begin to edify, exhort, and comfort one another in in these seasons of unrest, in these seasons of pain, sorrow. We know, though, that you that you reign, and that in your reigning, your righteousness will bring about peace that surpasses all understanding, that it guard our hearts and our minds through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.
0: Amen. Amen. Reggie, you are godly and anointed, and I have found it a privilege to speak to you this last hour. I want to thank you for taking the time to spend here. Thank you. Hey, uh, before we sign off, tell people how they can reach you. Uh, I know your website, uh, inkwell.com.
1: Inkwellspoken. So that's inkwellspoken.com. Uh, that is one way you can get to me. I have an email address as well, um, Reggie Key at inkwellspoken.com. I'm all over social media, everybody. Um, I do a lot, I'm a poet, so I do a lot of creating. Words, wordplay, I love it. So anywhere on social media, whether it's Pinterest, whether it's uh, Instagram, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, uh, you can just look for "ink well spoken" as a hashtag. Okay, perfect. As a hashtag, and you'll be able to find me and my work. And that's one way that I get out my frustrations is just to to create and, and express what God has given me.
0: Uh, Man, it is, again, uh, just so grateful for you. And uh, guys, if you're still listening, I know you are because this has been a riveting conversation. uh, Email me your thoughts or find resources for your growth and uh, walk with the Lord at livingwithpower.org. You guys know how to reach me on the contact page. Uh, Guys, come back next week. We're going to continue this conversation. Some of these concepts are difficult, but man, do we need the truth of God's word. To guide us and his spirit to direct us. Let's keep our eyes on Jesus. Let's keep our hopes in him. He is the only hope of the world and we're going to continue to trust him. I'll see you guys next week.